creating an atmosphere for worship. Are you ready to worship or continue to worship? A couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, Pastor Walt um, asked me if, if I would speak here today. And he said, I'd like to hear, I'd like the congregation to hear your story, your testimony. But you can preach a sermon if you want. So it's nice to have a choice, isn't it? So Walt gave you a choice. So I thought, um, okay, share my story. Most people like a story, perhaps even more than a sermon sometimes. And uh, it's a good way of introducing myself to the audience. And Let's just say a word of prayer as we get started. Gracious God, we are here to worship you today, to we covet your presence. We delight in God as our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that there will be something in the next few minutes in this story that will have meaning for boys and girls and men and women in this audience and others that will hear that your name will be glorified. And we thank you for all the good gifts you give to us, the blessings, most of all for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Can you hear a little bit of an accent there? It's amazing where people think I'm from. Usually they don't get it right. I was in South Carolina last week, and we were swimming near a waterfall, and I heard some young people speak. And as soon as I heard them speak, I said, they're from England. And I listened a little bit more, and I thought, I know that accent. Might sound a little bit different than mine, but I knew it. They said, where are you from? And they said, Manchester. I was born just outside Manchester and lived there uh, most of my childhood. Small world. In Manchester, in England, it's a very secular place. What I mean by that is they don't talk about God very much. Most homes probably don't have a Bible. They certainly wouldn't dream of going to church, most people, including myself. I sometimes went to Sunday school for a little while, just so my parents could have some peace and quiet for a while. Um, and there was one time when the teacher said, if anyone would like to stay after the class and give their hearts to Jesus, and I thought, yeah, I want to do that. I'm not sure how old I was, eight, nine, probably years of age. And I said what the teacher told me to say, and nothing happened. I was still this young boy who hadn't changed. And if Jesus Christ can do anything, he can change lives. And I know he's changed many lives in this audience this morning. I'll never understand until I meet Jesus face to face why I wasn't born again at such a young age. But later, 
I would understand what the conversion experience is all about. So I grew up, as most young people, bars, pubs. We used to have a lot of pubs, not, not so many anymore. Um, chasing the girls, doing the things that young people do, supposedly to find fulfillment and satisfaction. And I did try most things out there, and they didn't really truly satisfy. I started working at 15 in a printing factory as a compositor, setting up the type for print, but I got bored with that. The same age at 15, I was given a Bible. Still have the Bible at home. It's an old King James, very plain looking. And I was a bit of a bookworm. I used to read a lot. So it went on the shelf and wasn't read. And for five years, that book would sit there gathering dust. Why the public school system would give us a Bible when we left, when we graduated, I have no idea. Probably some Bible society generosity. At 17, I was very restless, and I left home and went to a place called Jersey, which is an island between France and England, and with friends there, basically experienced many things in life, trying to figure out what life is all about, really. That's where most teenagers are, and um, some of my friends would break into jewelers and go through customs with 20 watches up their arms. And it was supposedly, it was exciting, but it never satisfied. After Jersey, I went home to Manchester, couldn't settle down, and went on, on my own to a place called Torquay on the south of coast of England. And in Torquay with a girlfriend, I was invited to experience the Ouija board. It wasn't the first time in my life that, that I had done this. Um, some years earlier, I was with some friends in their apartment and we tried it. And there was fitted carpet in this apartment. And there's a little sliver of a small space of hard wood under the carpet. And as we were playing around with this, in a kind of nervous way, playing around with this glass, um, it moved on its own off the table and broke on the only place it could break, in that little piece of wood. Well, of course, you can imagine that just freaked us out. We just ran into the kitchen, just looked at one another. Didn't quite know what to make of it, and uh, it scared scared uh, one of the Catholic boys who, who, whose parents owned that apartment to bring the priest in to bless the place. So it, it did scare us, but that's about it. Here I am now in Torquay a few years later with the girlfriend doing the Ouija board, and, and I have to say this was much more serious. And we were getting answers we were getting revelations from this source that just blew me away. 
think at this time my, my thinking was changing. I was probably a little bit more open to the possibility of the supernatural. And it was this experience with the Ouija board, and I'm not saying go home and try this, but it was this experience with the Ouija board that convinced me that there was a supernatural power, something outside of myself. I didn't know what it was. I knew that some of the messages that were spelt out, nobody else except my girlfriend could know in that room. But one thing bothered me. The glance, the messages were not always correct. Most of the time they were, but sometimes they were not. And for some reason, maybe this is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, it bothered me. If this source is from God, this should be true. And if it's true, it's 100% true. That's the way my mind was working. I didn't know if there was a God. I didn't really think of God. But whatever this source, whatever this power is, if it's occasionally dropping in a few lies, that bothered me. So I broke up with this girlfriend. I moved away from Torquay. I'm back in Manchester. I'm around 19, 20 years of age. I'd experienced quite a lot of things, as most young people have. I'd had friends that died on drugs. We found the body of somebody called Terry. That'll get your attention, someone with the same name as yourself, a friend, dead, in an abandoned building. Had friends that died on motorbikes, just scraped their body off the road. So what happens when you die? I had a thousand questions, but zero answers. It just doesn't seem fair to die so young, and then what? And as I was still very much drinking, and I'd come home, sometimes drunk, usually had a 30-minute walk to get home from the bus, and I'd watched a movie called Alfie. Anybody know Alfie? Going back to 1966 with... Michael Caine, Shelley Winters, I think it was. And uh, I won't sing it to you. That might just ruin the whole worship experience for you, but <coughs> I'll share some of the words. I never thought of myself as a playboy like Michael did or Alfie did, but some of these sentiments applied to me. So the song goes, what's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when you sort it out, Alfie? Are we meant to take more than we give? Or are we meant to be kind? And if only fools are kind, Alfie, then I guess it's wise to be cruel. And if life belongs only to the strong, Alfie, what will you lend on an old golden rule. As sure as I believe there is a heaven above, Alfie, I know there's something much more, something even non-believers can believe in. I believe in love, Alfie. 
Without true love, we just exist. And Alfie, until you find the love you've missed, you're nothing, Alfie. And when you walk, let your heart lead the way. And you'll find love any day, Alfie. So I would be going home five nights a week, six nights a week. I was driven, driven by the nightlife, the alcohol, and everything that went with it. The reality was I was a captive of Satan. And it would take a mighty miracle of God to free me from my captivity. One evening as I'm at home, thinking, a voice spoke to me. And the voice said three words, read the Bible. And what had happened at 15 years of age when I left school, what was I given? A Bible. So my eyes went straight to the book, my book. I got up off my bed, I blew the dust off, and I started reading. In the beginning, God created something. Wow, that's a new thought. What did he create? My knowledge of the Bible was virtually zero at this point in time. So I read about this creator God creating things, and things are very good, and then they become very bad. And I knew quite a lot about the very bad part. I didn't need to be told I was a sinner. By the time I'd finished the Old Testament, that was pretty clear. And as I got into the New Testament, it was decision time. We often emphasize as Seventh-day Adventists that we've made our choice for God. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But God chose me and you before we ever chose him. And I said, if there is a God, this was my prayer. I didn't know if you knelt down, closed your eyes, folded your hands. I, I didn't know what to do. But I knew that I was in the presence of God. And I knew he wanted a response. So I said, if there is a God, if these things are true, and before I had finished that prayer, I was born again. In a moment of time, the time of eternity, eternal life, born again, born from above, a new creation. We could go on and on and on. It's so hard to explain. And it's so wonderful to experience. To me, Christianity is not a dogma. It's not so much a doctrine. It's a relationship with the living God. 20 years of age, as ungodly as they come. And God in his mercy and his love delivers me from Satan and 
brings me into his everlasting kingdom. Adopted, predestined, elected, I've already said chosen, justified. What's the last one? Usually say sanctified, don't we? Romans 8, glorified. Present tense. Peace that passes all understanding came over me. A oneness with God. I really didn't understand that Bible. But now God gave me something to help me to understand. What was that? What happens when Jesus embraces you? Holy Spirit enters into your life. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Sure, I was sincere when I was reading the Bible for months and months and months. I'd cycle from home. I couldn't wait to get into that Bible. But I didn't understand it until God put his Holy Spirit, his very presence, into me. Presence is a is a marvelous word. We have some people here and other folks I'm hearing about who have recently passed away. When they're grieving, it's not words that they need so much. It's presence. Someone present to be with them. In the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, God's presence was there face to face with Adam and Eve. But when sin came in, that was broken. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament, 400 years before the New Testament, where's the presence of God? He's no longer speaking through his prophets. And then, of course, Jesus comes. The true embodiment of God. The clearest picture mankind can get of what God is like. If you don't like Jesus, you don't like God. And if you do like Jesus, you do like God. And of course, it's more than liking, it's loving. He loved us, and we love him. So now I have this peace, this presence, this sense of oneness with God. It was late at night, I fall asleep, I wake up in the morning and, whoa, I'm in a new world. Well, it was still dusty Manchester. Probably was raining, for all I know. It usually does. Any of you been there? It was the northwest of England. You've heard of the Rolling Stones? You've heard of the Beatles? You've heard of Liverpool? Well, we're about an hour from there, Manchester. Known for its soccer, Manchester United, Manchester City. Heaven is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. It makes God really, really happy when we come into his family. And all we have to do is Embrace Jesus. Seems too easy. 
the sun. So that's what happened in my conversion. But of course, there is the next day. The next day I wake up and I'm in a new world. What do I mean by that? I cycled to work. I had never noticed flowers, birds, trees, sky. What's sky? don't need drugs to be spaced out. You have to be spaced out on God. Cycle to work, get to work, and I worked with a pretty rough bunch of guys. We would go out in the van, six of us, cleaning up school yards and gra cutting grass and things like that. And I was very much one of the boys the day before. But now it's the new day, the new world, the new life that God has put into me. So I'm telling everyone about Jesus, and everyone didn't want to know about Jesus. You know what, you've been there, you know what that's like. And I think it was my first day, I knew persecution. At least the mocking and so on. By the time I left that group of men, I had their respect, but... Uh, they didn't understand me. And so I prayed to God and I said, Lord, you must have people. Now this is how a secular person processes things, or at least how I do. You must have people who love Jesus like I do and believe the Bible. Bible was very big for me at that time. It led me to Jesus. Of course, it was really the Holy Spirit using the Bible to lead me to Jesus. So you must have people who love Jesus and believe in the Bible. I never prayed for 28 doctrines or 29. When's it going to start? Need a PhD to become a Seventh-day Adventist. And God had, you know, I'm a baby in Christ, of course, at this time. I don't know a Christian on the face of the earth. But I was God's child. I was his babe. And he was going to take care of me. And if I prayed to him, which I did as the best I knew how, I believed he would answer my prayer, and he did. Babies need a lot of affection, a lot of stroking. And that's what God does to new converts. So... I came home from work one day, believe it or not, the sun was shining. I'm at the front door reading the evening paper, and I see a brown-skinned lady going from door to door. Now, I very much belonged to God at this time, but Satan wasn't going to let me go easily. And part of me was saying, get rid of her. Don't give her the time of day. She's just flogging stuff from door to door. You're not interested in that. And so she saw me. She approached me. There was a gate between us. She half opened the gate. She looked at my face. It was not a welcoming face. Do I have a welcoming face this morning? I hope so. I try. And she held a health magazine up. 
you don't talk religion at someone's door in England unless you want the door slammed in your face. And so she says, good, good afternoon, sir. Can I introduce you to a Good Health magazine? And I laughed because I was 20 years of age in the pri- prime of life, healthy, young. What do you want a health magazine for? And she didn't know what to say after that. I didn't know what to say. And to break the lull, I said to her, what else have you got in your bag? Bit cynical, very skeptical person. And she said, religious books, am I really a doctor? Finally, I have someone I can talk to, maybe, about this experience I've had with Jesus. So she ended up selling me a Your Bible and You. Any of you remember that, Arthur Maxwell? I hated the pictures, still do. But it, did, it was helpful. I learned a few things about alcohol and so on. So it was, it was a little step a lot along the way, I suppose. And as this woman, Mrs. Brown from Jamaica, living in England at that time, spoke to me, she said things coming from her mouth that I had prayed to Jesus in secret. Is that prophecy? It certainly was powerful to me. And I cried. I was so overcome with emotion, I just cried at the front door. But hey, 20-year-old, they don't do that at the front door, living in their parents' house with the neighbors walking by. She realized that something very special was happening. Most people insulted her. She was a part-time co-porter spatted her. There's even a man around the corner who she seemed to show some interest and she would visit him again and he wouldn't even open the door and she knew he was home. And, and in England, we, at least we used to have, I probably still have, letter boxes on the front door where the postman comes, the mailman comes and pushes letters. Eccentric, I know, but not really anything. So, she shouted through his letterbox. You know, your pastor says, go out witnessing. Would you do this? On her knees, shouting through the letterbox, Jesus is your only hope. This man had shared with her on another occasion. He was looking for meaning, possibly like I was. But he wasn't finding it in Jesus, and he ignored her. And she went home. She was... Uh, it's not easy to be a coal porter. I did it for five, six summers. It's not the easiest work to do, especially if you're in a secular, secular place. And she had probably had a rough day. This man didn't respond. It seemed nobody was interested. Mrs. Brown had signed me up. She tried to get Bible studies with me, but that wasn't going to happen in my parents' house, bringing this strange woman in. So she signed me up for correspondence lessons, voice of prophecy. And I just really liked, I mean, I needed that at that point in time. It was very helpful. Now, and she visited a number of times, even I remember one time she stood out there in the rain. I didn't even invite her in, um, asking me to come to church. And I just wasn't ready for church. 
It was so hard for me to even mentally think of church. What church? I didn't know what church was. Is that where you have weddings and funerals and things like that? But she was probably encouraged. I continued with those lessons. I did the lessons. Every course they offered, I still have them at home. I sometimes look at them and look how I used to write and how I used to think. And and finally, I was ready to visit the church. Now, think about this, because it's so hard for a born-again individual who hardly knows a Christian on the face of the earth and desperately needs fellowship and everything the church can offer. If it was so hard for me to go, think of your community here. Not everyone that'll will get into the church building so easily. As Mrs. Brown is at home, probably whining and griping and hot tears of sorrow that it's so rough witnessing for Jesus. A letter comes through the mailbox, the letterbox from me. Dear Mrs. Brown, I've been studying these Bible lessons for so many months now, and I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church is God's true church. And I'm ready to visit. She Tears of sorrow turn to tears of what? Joy, joy. And she gave me instructions on how to get to the church. Maybe in the class afterwards, I can share some of these things with you. Wrote me, eventually wrote a poem and just some, some interesting things. Even though I'd studied the lessons, probably two or three at least on the Sabbath, I didn't get it. Yes, I got the right answers. I was pretty good at that. But I didn't get it. It wasn't in my heart. I went out for a driving lesson, Sabbath morning. I'd made the promise to her to visit. I had to go down to the city center to pick up a bus. And going to a part of Manchester I'd never been to before. And in those days, we had a driver and a conductor, double-decker red bus, very English. And he would take, the conductor would take the money. So I gave him my money. He gave me a ticket. And I said, drop me off at Wilbraham Road. Tell me when Wilbraham Road comes. That's where the church was. So I'm on this bus and I think, man, this is a long way to go. And we went miles past Wilbraham Road. She told me in the letter that there was a morning service and an afternoon service. So I wasn't. I mean, I was going to go, but I wasn't that keen on going. And I thought, yeah, I'll go to the afternoon service. And the driver and the conductor said, no, you can just jump on another bus and you'll be back there in no time. Use the same ticket. And I thought, no, I'll walk. I'll make the afternoon service. So, of course, she had told some of the key people in the church, look out for this young white guy. This is a two-thirds Jamaican church with probably a third white, white English and I didn't come in the morning, and there must have been some disappointment, but it was all in the plan of God. I make my way in the afternoon, and I stand there on the opposite side of the church. The church was a flat-looking, 
looked like a modular building, could blow it over, I think. Behind me is this regal, tall spire, Church of England. What would that be? David and Goliath? You figure out which one's David. And again, the devil moved in. And as I saw people going in the church and left and right, mainly Jamaicans going in, he said, this is not for you, Terry. That's a Jamaican church. Let them get on with their Calypso music. That's not for you. And the Holy Spirit is saying, wow, but you've made a promise. Cross the road and just go in. And believe me, crossing that road with fear and trepidation is very, very hard. I go into the church foyer, and God has got his man there called Brother Edwards. Big, tall Jamaican man who was obviously on the lookout for me. Good afternoon, sir. And I saw everyone going into the sanctuary through these double doors, and I said, what's going on in there? I was very uncomfortable. Didn't really know what to say. And he said, perfect answer. He said, why not go in and see? Now, if he had said to me, there's going to be a baptism, I probably would have got my Bible and said, show me, because that's the way, the way I'm wired. But to say go in and see was perfect. So I went in, and as my bottom hit the pew, that still small voice spoke to me again and said, this is your spiritual friend. Now it's true that I'd had the outer witness of the Spirit studying the Bible, studying what Adventists believe. But now I have something equally, if not more important, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit saying, this is the way. Walk ye in it. And then to see my first baptism, I didn't know that people went underwater. Some of them looked like they were ready to just dive in there. They were so keen and excited. And you can imagine what the Holy Spirit was saying to me. Terry, you need to be baptized. Well, hey, I'm saved. Why do I need to be baptized? You just do. And I didn't need any convincing. If they would have taken me that day, I would have dived in there. But that's not the way it usually works in a Seventh-day Adventist church, right? So I studied with the associate pastor for some time, and then my time came when, when it was my baptism. I shared with my family, hey, do you want to come to my baptism? Of course, they were trying to, my parents were trying to relate, what's Terry getting into? Seventh-day Adventist, no one had ever heard of it before. I don't think they'd still heard of it in England. My uncle and my dad came to my baptism. And as I saw the people getting baptized before me, I thought, stiff up a lip, Terry. Don't get emotional here. Place was packed. Of course, my family, some of my family were there. 
But as I stood in the water with the pastor and he started to share just a few things from this story, I just cried like a baby. I was putty in God's hands. He could mold me and shape me any way he wanted. And I went into that water as the babe. And as I came out of that water, I said, praise the Lord. Probably because it's a Jamaican church. They said, praise the Lord back. The building shook. Remember, it was a modular building. The building shook. My uncle, my dad probably looked at one her and said, what's going on here? What's Terry gotten himself into? It's the sweet, powerful moving of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't my salvation. But it sure was a beautiful empowerment of the Holy Spirit because once we become Christians, we are to share and disciple and make disciples and advance the kingdom and live a holy life. Don't we need the power of the Holy Spirit to get at least something right in our life? Of course we do. It wasn't too long after that. It was actually at a, a, something called a prayer meeting. Have you ever heard of prayer meetings? Kind of a, like a dinosaur in some Adventist church or apostle, if you like. But it was at a prayer meeting. I can't remember what the pastor said, but the spirit used it. And I said to his wife afterwards, you know, I'd, I'd like to serve Jesus 24-7. And she says, oh, really? Have you ever thought of going to New Bull College? What's New Bull College? And the day came when I visited New Bull College, and I thought, and I obviously felt this calling from God to, to serve him. Uh, in the way of being a, a minister, a pastor of, of, of religion, pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which I've done for, for quite a while now and have recently retired from paid pastoral work. I'm still doing pastoral work, but no, no pay. Different kind of pay. Let me share something with you. Let's turn to a scripture as we conclude here. It's in John chapter 10. We could go to, to Luke 15, the prodigal son, but let's go with John chapter 10. And it's Jesus as the good shepherd. We love this shepherd metaphor because we know that if shepherds do anything, they take care of their sheep. So in John chapter 10, and I'll read verses 7 through 10. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And verse 14 I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too 
will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus knows us individually. Apply this to yourself as I share this with you. And he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows us all by name. He knows the very house in which we live, the name of each occupant. And he has at times given directions to his servants to go to a certain street in a certain city to such a house to find one of his sheep. I don't mind being called a sheep. How about you? Biblically, it's better than being a goat. Let's pray. Almighty God, we, we thank you for your presence being here this morning. Lord, may we not just know you intellectually, but may it move from the head to the heart. The new covenant promises that you will dwell within us and we shall all know you. If there are any here, Lord, who are struggling, as I indeed was 19, 20 years of age, reveal yourself to them. Give them the desires to follow the shepherd wherever he leads. We ask this in Jesus' holy name.